This is the Education Gadfly Show. Gosh, if it's alphabetical, I'm like, what reformers need to do is we need to find people whose last name starts with an A. What does Gadfly say? Hello, this is your host, Mike Petrilli of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute. You heard the Education Gadfly Show and online at FordhamInstitute.org. And now, please welcome my special guest for this week, the original Education Gadfly, Shaker Finn. Hey, happy to fly in and join you again. Yes, great to have you back. And also joining, as always, my co-host, David Griffith. Hey, Mike, always a pleasure. Yes, indeed. Well, Checker, we are excited to have you on the show, not only because we always enjoy having you on the show, but because you are doing your Gadfly thing, as always, and in particular about President Biden's big proposal around universal pre-K. So let's talk about that in Ed Reform Update. So everybody's... uh, Favorite rich uncle, Uncle Sam and Uncle Biden, Uncle Joe, all teaming up together to give us free preschool. And here you are, the Grinch coming in saying, not so fast. This is a bad idea. Come on. What's the problem, Checker? The the kids want to go to school. Why are you standing in the way? Well, you know, 12 years ago, I wrote a little book for Hoover called Reroute the Preschool Juggernaut, and it went after the same fallacy, which is the fallacy that a great big government provided universal pre-K program uh, is a good use of, of education dollars and a good use of public policy. It's just not. This one, incidentally, is bigger than ever before. I mean, at $200 billion, it's 20 times Head Start, which is the biggest federal preschool program there is today. It's five times the whole education department's K-12 budget. This is just immense compared to anything anybody's ever proposed before. So it's an awful lot of money on the table. It's a bad idea for a bunch of reasons. Above all, the basic proposition being that just adding years of school is going to produce a better result. Biden has said nothing at all about results. He's only interested in what goes in, in inputs, in services, in coverage. Um, I thought the country cared about whether kids were learning anything, not just how long they linger in a building called school that wasn't doing a very good job with its 13 grade program. Now he wants to add two grades at the beginning and then another two grades at the end. So How's that going to make a better result? Yeah. Now, the argument you made way back then, and that some of us have been making on on Twitter, I don't know why I still try to have debates on Twitter, but uh, anyway, that's that's a story for another day, is is that, okay, it makes sense to invest in preschool for poor kids who do not have access to preschool, and especially high quality preschool. In fact, that's one of the problems the Head Start is that maybe, maybe we spread the money around too thin. And so the programs are not as high quality as they could or should be. You made that case, but why subsidize the upper middle class uh, parents who today are paying for it out of their own pocketbooks? Sorry, David, but uh, you know, why should we do like the District of Columbia does and have this incredible subsidy where, you know, all these rich parents get free preschool for age three and four, whereas those of us in the, in the DC suburbs have to pay for it out of our own pocket. Is that the strongest case, do you think, Checker? Like, basically, if this was targeted at poor kids, you'd be okay with it? Well, if it was targeted and also giving poor kids what they really need by way of preschool, which is not two more years of school starting at age three, it's really an intensive intervention program that starts at birth, that starts with helping their mothers, often young single mothers without much education, learn how to read to them, learn how to uh, get them ready to do all the things that kids need to learn how to get ready to do before they ever go to school. What poor kids need is a seriously intensive intervention program, not just a couple more years tacked on to school. 
And as you just said, the spreading it across everybody spreads it thin and subsidizes a whole bunch of people. I mean, millions and millions of families that don't need it, that have already arranged it, or whose states and districts have already arranged it. And so, of course, it's appealing politically because it's universal. Everybody gets a free good. But it's a waste of money on the one hand, and it's not nearly intensive enough for the kids that need it the most on the other hand. All right. So let, let, let me rattle off some of the counter arguments here that I certainly heard on Twitter when I was making some of these same points. First of all, the notion, Rahm Emanuel and others say, hey, you know, this is an old line. A program for the poor is a poor program, right? It's not politically sustainable. You won't get funding for it. Maybe this is why Head Start has never had the per pupil funding that you really need to, to make it work. What, what do you say to that? Well, first of all, I say that the problem with Head Start is that it is not a pre-K program. It is a childcare program, which speaks incidentally to another big Biden initiative, which is another bunch of zillion dollars for just child care. Head Start's never had a curriculum. It's never been school oriented. It's never been pre-reading oriented. It is not an education program. It is a social services program for poor kids. And it doesn't do bad things. It does nice things, but it doesn't prepare kids to succeed in school, which is what pre-K ought to do. Mm -hmm. All right. Another argument that people use is that we don't expect upper middle class parents to pay for K through 12 education, right? We have a notion that education is a public good. So if we've decided that, hey, it really is helpful for kids to start some kind of school or school-like program at age three, what's the argument against paying for three and four-year-olds if we're going to pay for five-year-olds for everybody? Well, once you start saying what would be good for everybody to have more of, well, government could also pay for summer camp and dancing lessons and piano lessons and buying everybody breakfast, lunch, and dinner. I mean, come on. The fact that people might want more of something doesn't mean that the government's job to provide it. And if we had a bunch of great schools that were doing a wonderful job starting at, at kindergarten and going through grade 12, then maybe... Um, lengthening the exposure that kids have to those great schools would be good for kids. But these poor kids especially are going to crummy schools that are doing a dreadful job starting in kindergarten. So why are we adding two more years before kindergarten? And keep in mind that the Biden plan is very much a school-based program. It is very much a teacher union-centric program. It is meant to expand schooling, not to prepare kids for school. Yeah. And to be clear, not all high poverty elementary schools are terrible. There's a lot of good ones in both the district and especially the charter sector. So that's maybe an in interesting innovation. As you say, you, you would let elementary schools apply uh, to provide pre-K, free pre-K, but they have to demonstrate that they're good at what they're already doing and that any gains you get coming out of pre-K are going to continue into kindergarten. Well, that I could be talked into if it's, yeah. if it's targeted on poor kids and if it's a school that already knows what it's doing starting in kindergarten, then that might be a good idea. All right. One last question, then I'm going to let David get in here. Is, uh, <laughs> all right. The other rebuttal was that there's been some studies, including one big one, uh, showing that you get better results from universal programs than targeted programs. I think the argument was that because those programs might be more socioeconomically integrated. So in other words, if it's just for the poor, then those, those kids are going to basically high poverty preschools. If everybody gets it, there's a better chance of going to schools that have middle class and upper middle class kids in them as well. And just as with K-12 education, poor kids in general do better in those kinds of integrated settings. Well, be that as it may, the schools that are going to be expanded downward to start with three and four-year-olds that poor kids attend are the same schools that they're attending now starting at age five. So if they're not integrated today starting at age five, they're not going to be integrated tomorrow starting at age three, not the same schools. Yep. Yeah. I, all I right. agree with all that. 
Yeah, I mean, I don't completely disagree with Checker here. Um, in fact, I agree with a fair amount of what he said. Any universal program is probably a waste of money at some level, right? Some, some of the money is going to be wasted. And I also agree with the point that, you know, it shouldn't just be an opportunity to expand the traditional system, right? In other words, I find it easier to support, you know, if it's some sort of voucher or some sort of um, choice-based system that doesn't seem so clearly linked to sort of the traditional interest groups. Having said that, I mean, I think I don't think it's as cut and dried as Checker does. I think there are valid arguments for this. I think one argument that's often made, right, in DC is just that it's a workforce participation argument. I think if you provide childcare, then it's at some level, it's a pro-work program. And certainly, specifically, it's I think it's a, it's a pro-female work program. And many people we've seen during the pandemic have essentially been forced out of the labor market, women in particular, because they have to look after their kids. I guess the other thing I would say is quality is really important, but I struggle with that argument just as a sort of first move, right? Because we also have quality problems in the K-12 sector, but I don't think it follows that we should necessarily get rid of K-12 education, right? So to me, you know, the critical question, right, is basically how far down should we go? Um, there was a time when many kids didn't go to kindergarten, right? There was a time when college was very aspirational. Many people didn't go to college, right? So the, the key question to me is just basically, do kids belong in school in these years or not? And if they do, then I'm personally open to expanding school down and then continuing to fight the sort of the quality war as sort of a cleanup operation. But I do think, you know, it, it's debatable, right? I mean, I don't think anybody's really making the case that kids should go to school at two. And three is also pretty young. And so the question is basically, when does school start? Well, I'm old and jaded enough to think that it's almost always a mistake to start something at scale with the hope that it will later be made quality. I just don't think government does anything that way very well. The childcare argument is is worth having, but honest to God, that's a different Biden proposal. He's got a huge childcare program on top of the pre-K program. And there's always already a lively argument going on about that as to whether it's basically pro-woman or anti-family and whether, you know, little kids are going to get uh, brainwashed in government approved uh, childcare centers. But I wasn't going there. I was just talking about that preschool program. And again, he's also uh, providing what are basically child allowances, right? I mean, we've got this refundable tax credit now, the, the child tax credit that's newly refundable and expanded. This is why child poverty is going to be cut in half over the next year. Those dollars can be used like vouchers if families want to. Exactly. And, you know, so David Brooks has made that made that argument last week. You know, one option is to just go the voucher route, beef up that child allowance to even higher numbers, higher dollar amounts. And then if families want to spend that on child care, they can. If they want to spend it on preschool, they can. If they want to use that money so that one of the parents doesn't have to go back to work, they can do that too. Uh, and that's interesting. Sure. Now, again, the analogy at the K-12 level would be, well, you know, just give everybody an education savings account and be done with it. And I think we would all have some concerns about how that might play out. All right, well, Checker, one, one last question. I mean, I think it's pretty clear that the Republicans are going to oppose this and the rest of the uh, Biden's, whatever he's calling it, the American Families Plan. Mm -hmm. uh, but Senator Manchin is going to be important in deciding what gets done. So what advice do you give to Senator Manchin on this pre-K thing? What, what are the things that he should push for that are realistic, that you could imagine Biden folks uh, agreeing to? 
Well, number one, transform Head Start into a pre-K program that gets kids ready for school. Number two, offer the dollars to needy families in the one or another of these voucher arrangements that subsidize poor families looking after their own kids. And number three, uh, work on at least some pilot programs for organizations, not necessarily public schools, that want to try intensive interventions for very poor kids, of which Senator Manchin has a fair number in West Virginia. I like it. That's a good agenda. Well, thank you, as always, Checker. Again, Checker Finn, the original education gadfly, President Emeritus of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute. Thanks for joining us. All the best. Happy to do it. See you soon. And now it's time for everyone's favorite, Amber's Research Minute. Amber, welcome back to the show. Thank you, Mike. So uh, you were telling me earlier you've, you've got a new hobby. Is that true? Oh, Mike, I'm into the old person sport called pickleball. Gotta tell you, it's uh, it's 75 and up and me, you know, and uh, yes. I, I got a little advantage. I mean, seriously, is, is that what this is about? You're, you're just, it does seem a little bit unfair, but kind of a smart strategy, actually. Hey, I hear it's overtaking the United States as the most popular sport. Hey, or maybe that's just what <laughs> pickleballers tell each other. Well, that's just another sign of the aging society that we live in. In the business, uh, we call that a category error. <laughs> uh, right. Yes. Well said. Thank you, David. Uh, anyway, it's, uh, it's great fun for people who aren't in shape. Right. And you get in shape, theoretically. <laughs> well, not really. It's, it's much smaller than a tennis court, so there's not too much running around. <laughs> you get really big quads and calves. That, that is, again, why this is so well-suited for the older set. But uh, otherwise, Amber, you are still young at heart. Don't spend all your time with those 80-year-olds. <laughs> uh, you get too cut off. For example, uh, the original uh, education gadfly, Chucker Finn, who we had on earlier, who, who earlier today told me that he has, he has no idea who Billie Eilish is. And wow. I'm like, yeah, I guess that would make sense. Although really, Checker, your granddaughters need to do something else. <laughs> All right. What you got for us this week? Yeah. All right. We've got a novel, if complicated, study this week. Hopefully you guys can uh, help me get through all this. Uh, it examines the influence of educators elected to the school board on various outcomes. And we don't see a lot of this. So they're looking at total district enrollment in charter schools, the number of district authorized charter schools in the district, teacher salaries, student achievement and high school graduation for starters. Just a little bit of, well, a little more than a little bit of, uh, of context. Uh, we know it's difficult to examine the impact of school board composition on these outcomes in part because composition is endogenously determined via the electoral process, which basically means, for instance, that things like district teacher salaries or student performance may influence who runs and who voters elect to the school board. Mm. So a couple economists, God love them, came up with a unique way to try to disentangle these things by leveraging a well-established empirical phenomenon called the ballot order effect which has repeatedly shown that the candidate listed at the top of the ballot gains an electoral advantage. So the underlying rationale in their empirical approach is that random assignment of ballot order thus generates exogenous variation in the composition of the elected school board. And lo and behold, California, where they conduct the study, implements randomized assignment of the order that candidates appear on election ballots. Oh, my gosh. That, that cool. is... Cool. That's right. That's brilliant. Uh, I mean, I was thinking, boy, if we can only randomly assign uh, people to school boards, then we could really study this phenomenon. But uh, you can't do that. But that's there is a randomization here. We're getting close. 
And by the way, kind of crazy that in other places, what, they just like list school board candidates by alphabetically. And so that the oh. ones with the letter A in their last, starting their last name. There is some the order. I, I do believe I read in a footnote, that's the way that some states are doing this. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Especially, I, I assume this is especially big in, in these kinds of elections that are nonpartisan. Okay, anyways, yeah, go, go ahead. All right, so I'm just going to say it again. So they're saying that the assignment of an educator to the first ballot position generates quasi-random variation in the expected number of educators elected to the board, such that they're estimating the causal effects of an additional educator elected to the board conditional on the share of educators in the candidate pool. And then there's a bunch of other controls that I'm not going to get into. So Honestly, it's a really long paper. I'm not going to pretend to understand all the ins and outs of what they did, but there are many pages explaining the rationale and they perform a bunch of validity checks and robustness checks. And then I looked at like all the reviewers and there are these very accomplished people in the ed education research world that reviewed the paper. So I think we're going to have to just trust that some of this is new empirical ground that they're breaking and it's worthy of our attention. Important to note that they replicated the ballot order effect first. And they did find that candidates randomly listed at the top gain a 10.3 percentage point advantage relative to other ballot positions. What? <laughs> 10%? 10 10.3 percentage point. That is oh, not jump change. My goodness. A little context and I'll finally sort of get into the meat of this. California started randomizing ballot order in 1975. And the randomizing occurs after the election entry deadline so that candidates cannot base their ultimate decision on whether to run based on their order position, which would have created some problems for the methodology. So, all right. So what do they do? They construct school board candidate rosters for California spanning nearly two decades between 1998 and 2015, which include each candidate's vote shares, their ballot position, electoral outcome, and their occupational background, which they use to categorize them as educators or not. They merge those records with school district characteristics and other dependent variables, including teacher salaries and student outcomes. Their sample includes over 14,000 candidates in California school board elections. Descriptively, 16% of those candidates are educators, and the average share of educators on each school board is 18%. Now for the four key findings. Number one, an educator randomly assigned to the top of the ballot increases the number of educators elected by 0.14 individuals, which equates to a 26% increase. Number two, an additional educator elected to the board reduces charter school enrollment two years post-election, with the effect peaking at four years post-election. Whereas the number of charters shows a negative trend one year after the focal election that continues linearly through six post-treatment years. Mm. Specifically, each additional educator elected causes a three percentage point decline in the charter enrollment share and 1.3 fewer charter schools in the district four years after the focal election. Number three, the top ballot assignment position leads to increases in certified teacher salaries, about 2% on average, that increases somewhat over time and shows a simultaneous shift away from capital outlay cost. And number four, there were no impacts on high school graduation, but small decreases with reading in the first three years after the focal election before rebounding back towards zero 
And then they, they, they looked at a bunch of supplemental survey data and it basically showed that educators are more likely to be union endorsed. Oof. Wow. First of all, it, it's just amazing that they were able to do all of this different fancy work and, and find impacts, right? I mean, because you're, you're several, you know, first it's about who gets elected to the school board. And then they, I guess they do something while they're on the school board policy-wise. And then that leads to some real changes in the real world that shows up in these charter school rates and that may show up in reading achievement. I mean, that is a long line of causation there. So uh, amazing work. A little strange to me that they just looked at you know, whether somebody's an educator or not, or I assume former educator, mm-hmm. I kind of wish we could just know like who got endorsed by the teachers union, but maybe they're saying that's, that's a bit of a proxy. Is that kind of the idea? Right. And they didn't, they didn't have that exactly for each of the people who are running. That was just right. supplemental survey data that weren't necessarily the same folks. Yeah. But I guess you could do something similar. I would assume by on other characteristics too, like are there differences by gender, by race, I don't know what else they would have on school board members, you know, but right. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm struggling to come up with something interesting to say here, Mike. I mean, because it, it all hangs, at least as described to me, it all hangs together really well. Right. Uh, there's a big decline in, in just the number of charters, right. As I understood it, uh, 1.3 charters certainly sounds like a lot in the, the average or median California district, right. It might not be a lot in LA, but most districts are small. And then there's a sort of smallish maybe decline in, in reading, with, which is, I guess the idea is that's sort of the, the opposite, the, the absence of a competitive effect or something like that. And then teacher salaries go up a little. I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's all very consistent with what we think we know, right. I think. Prior literature. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm with Mike. I want to know more, right? I mean, just... We all want to make it less binary than it probably is, right? But are there is there anything else that matters on school boards other than whether or not you're backed by a union or, you know, sort of on that side of the debate? Again, th- this notion that there's all these places out there that I guess probably are not randomizing. Right. <laughs> the list of candidates. And, and so, oh my gosh, if it's alphabetical, I'm like, what reformers need to do is we need to find people whose last name starts with an A and we need to get them <laughs> to run for school board. So if that's you, uh, we're, we're looking at you. Okay, yeah. Amanda Aragon, are you listening? Who else do we know? That fits Ars Arson, yeah, you know. We've got to get the Swedes in there. Uh. <laughs> yeah, that that was pretty jaw-dropping, right? I feel like I kind of intuitively thought people at the top of the ballot might have an advantage, but 10.3 percentage points? Wow. Yeah. That's pretty good. That's a good head start, people. It's interesting that they don't have two versions of the ballot, right? I mean, isn't that what you really, or at least... That's what that would really solve the problem, right? I mean, we haven't we haven't really solved the problem here, right? We've just meant that just means it's unfair randomly. <laughs> yes, yes, it's true. <laughs> that that is correct. That is correct. All right, really fascinating stuff, Amber. Keep it coming. More research on school boards. This yes, is good stuff. yes, yes. All right. Maybe well, less complicated, but all good. All right. Well, that is all the time we've got for this week. And so until next week, I'm David Griffith. And I'm Mike Petrilli of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute. The Education Gapfly Show is a production of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute located in Washington, D.C. For more information, visit us online at FordhamInstitute.org.